Amen. Life is worth living because he lives. John chapter 20, would you turn there with me, please? Many people spend their whole lives trying to figure out why they are living and trying to figure out a purpose for it. And if you ask people what is the purpose of life, many will say there is no purpose. And they find themselves, that's why people find themselves in such despair today. And that seems to be increasing more and more because people do not know and they do not feel that life is worth living. But we know that it is because our Savior is alive. And he offers unto us not just eternal life but abundant life now that will last eternally. John chapter 20, we come to the record according to John, the gospel according to John, and his account, this resurrection morning, the first resurrection morning. And I want to ask you a question. We, we've read, Tommy's read for us so faithfully and clearly the, the scriptures this morning, verses 1, 1 to 18. But I want to ask you today, before we go any further, what are you going to do with Christ? What will you do with Jesus Christ? Now, that's not just a question to the unbeliever. That's a question to all of us. What will you do with the Savior? Now, there are many people who like to call themselves Christians, but they don't really, they don't really know the Savior. And we find an interesting phrase in our text that I really want to take this phrase and make a sermon from it as it were, but this is Mary speaking. Peter and John have come. Mary and the other Mary and Salome have come and gone. And Peter and John have come and gone. And now Mary is the only one left at the grave. And she encounters the angels. And then she encounters Jesus himself without realizing it's Jesus. And she begins this conversation with him. And, and uh, he asks her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And she, supposing, this is verse 15, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, if you've taken him away, tell me where thou hast laid him. Watch this. And I will take him away. Now, I like this thought in Mary's mind. Now, Mary, at this point, has no idea that Jesus is alive. She still thinks he's dead. But she still wants him. And she wants to hold on to him as much as she can. And she wants to find out where they've put his body. And she, as little as she is and as weak as she may be, she herself is convinced that she will take him away. And I wonder, what will you do with Christ? It's a very personal question. And what you believe to be true about Jesus Christ will determine exactly what you do with him. What you believe to be true about who he is will determine what you do with him. And what we do with the truth that we already have or the truth that has already been revealed to us will determine how much more truth we receive and how much further we're able to go. But many people stop at the first glimmer of truth. What about you? On this first resurrection day that we're reading about in John chapter 20, there were a number of new discoveries that demanded some sort of reaction. And the same is true today. The more we learn, the more we discover about who Jesus is and, 
and the life that he lived and about this word and about our God, the more we discover, the more that it demands some reaction or response. Truth always demands a response. We're not just talking about information. We're talking about truth. And truth has implications. And what you do with truth has implications. For instance, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Truth. What you do with that has great implications. Because if you refuse to acknowledge that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and in your own stubborn mind you want to say 2 plus 2 equals 5, that affects every other mathematical equation that you will take from that point on. And so it is true about the person of Jesus. What you believe about him, about the truth revealed to you about him, will affect every other, not mathematical equation, but every other living equation is affected based upon what you believe about him. The first truth that we discover in our text, and it's a non-debatable truth, the first truth was that Jesus was dead. That's the first truth that we discover in our text. Now, I say it's non-debatable, but there are some people who, who are intent on debating, and they refuse to believe that Jesus even lived. In fact, we met some of them yesterday in the city center. Oh, he, Jesus never lived. But, you know, every, every historian, every thinking historian never denies the actual reality of the life of Christ. Well, they may debate over whether he performed miracles or whether he was risen from the grave, but every historian who is a faithful historian who's willing to look at the recorded evidences every faithful historian has acknowledged the existence of Christ's life so to say he never lived is just to not be honest with history and to not be honest with fact there's more historical evidence for the life of Christ than there is for Alexander the Great or all the Caesars combined and yet people are still bent on refusing to believe he lived because they don't want the implications of his life. That's why. It's easier for them to say he never lived than to actually face up with who he was and what he did and what that means for them today. So for many people, they would rather be willingly ignorant and say he never lived when actually there's so much historical evidence outside of the scriptures, outside of Christians, Roman historians, who did not even believe that Jesus was the Son of God, didn't believe he was a prophet, just believed he was another crucified man. And they record his life and his death. And yet we want to be so silly in 2023 and try to erase his existence because we don't like the implications of his existence. You can't debate the fact that he was alive, and we can't debate the fact that he died, although some will. Muslims say today Jesus never died. Say it wasn't him on the cross, he was up and somebody else died in his place but we all know and we believe that he actually died that the life went out of his body and we believe that he didn't just live a life but after 33 years he died he really died part of the reality of his existence was his death now some say well uh, he did die eventually but he didn't die then on the cross some Modern skeptics and uh, higher critics have tried to say that he just simply passed out on the cross. Then they put his body into the cold tomb, and when his face, his cold body laid, his body laid on a cold stone, it revived him. He simply swooned on the cross. The swoon theory, which is an absolute load of nonsense. 
because everybody knows that the cross was a most gruesome torture method that always ended with death, always. And there were certain procedures that took place to ensure that before a person was taken off of the cross, they were actually dead. There are medical studies that talk about the separation of blood and plasma when when the spear was thrust through his side and the blood and water come out. There are things like that, but we believe he was actually dead. No doubt that his followers believe he died. No doubt about it. Every one of them, if you look at their response, they're hiding away. Uh, they're, they're in depression. They're in grief. And even these women who come, as one of our young children pointed out a moment ago, really because they were mourning his death. and their, They come to the grave because in their mind there was no doubt that this man had died. He really died in his death. The truth of his death demands a reaction. It demands a response. And everybody responds to truth one way or another. And everyone responds to the truth of Christ's death in one way or another. Do you believe that he died? Well, so did his followers. There was no question in their minds. But it isn't enough just to believe that he died. Here's the next question. Why did he die? Why did this man called Jesus die? Some people say, well, he died because he upset all the, all the Jewish religious leaders. Or he died because the Romans got fed up with the, with the controversy that he was causing. And it was easier to do away with him, to kill him, than it was to continue on with the revolt. That's why he died wrong. He tells us why he died. He told us why he died before he died. And the scriptures tell us why he died after he died. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I remind you means good news, which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand. Let me just stop for a moment. Do you know, until you understand why he died, the gospel is never the gospel. It's not good news. How could a man dying on the cross be good news until you understand why he died? The Bible says in verse 2, by which also ye are saved. By this message of the gospel, we are saved if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Watch this. How that Christ died for our sins. That's why he died. So come on, give me something more deep than that. Deeper theologically. There it is. As simply as it can be put Christ died for your sins because someone has to die for your sins. It'll either be you and it'll be an eternal death or it will be him. And Christ died for our sins, the scriptures say, according to the scriptures. That's why he died. Matthew 26, 28, Jesus, before he died, breaking bread at the Last Supper, says in Matthew 26, this blood, as he, as he held that cup of, of wine in his hand, this blood of the New Testament, which is shed, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. I'm about to die, he was saying. My blood is about to be shed. My life is about to be taken to wash away sins. Galatians 1, verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. How many of you know we're living in an evil world? This present evil world is even more evil than it was then. And Christ died not just for our sins, 
but to deliver us from the evil that our sins have caused. Ephesians 1 verse 7. It says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Here's why he died. 1 Peter 2 verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. That's why he died. And Jesus Christ, with his own lips, told us that he laid down his life for his sheep. In John 15, verse 13, he told us there is no greater love than this, than that a man laid down his life for his friends. And so we understand the motive of his death was because he loved us, and he wanted to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sins. That's why he died. So the question is, do you believe it? His death demands a response. For many people, this is where their faith stops. Now, I want you to listen just as carefully as you can. For many people, this is exactly where their faith stops. It's a nice idea. Someone loves me, and they died for me. That's very nice. But the death of Jesus Christ alone by itself offers no hope for the brokenhearted and for offers no hope for the captive. It just means our hero's dead. It just means the one that we love, he lived a beautiful life, but now he's dead. It just means the one who preached the most amazing sermons on the planet is dead. The one who performed miracles like nobody else did, as amazing as it was, his life's come to an end, and that's it. He led us bravely for a while, but he's dead like every other man, if your faith stops there. Which is exactly what all of his followers were thinking at this moment. John chapter 20, all of his follower, followers thought it was all over. Their hero's gone. Their deliverer's dead. Their savior, the most amazing man they've ever met, is dead. The one they thought was going to deliver them from Roman bondage and captivity, he's dead. I mean, they saw with their eyes him raise Lazarus from the dead. They saw him break the loaves of fishes and the loaves and feed 5,000. They saw things that nobody else had ever seen. And they were brokenhearted because he's dead. And at this precise moment, that was the extent of their faith. It was good while it lasted. In Matthew 28, verse number 1, even Mary Magdalene were told she comes to see the sepulcher, the tomb where he laid. Not the Savior. In Mark 16, 1, we see the two Marys and Salome came, yes, not just to the sepulcher, but they came with sweet spices to anoint his dead body. They did not expect to find him alive. He was dead. And this is precisely the way many of us approach Jesus Christ today. Hear me for one second. So many of us approach the Savior just like this, as if, as if he's nothing more than a dead saint. And we have a little shrine and we pay homage to that little shrine and we say our prayers occasionally and offer light a candle and, and that's it. Or we say that he's alive. Our lives do not act like it. We come sorrowfully like these women did. We come sorrowfully carrying our burdens of grief and we offer our spices to him in memory of what he did for us but we still leave carrying our burdens and carrying our griefs because we don't really believe that he's alive. 
in all of our speech, when we speak about him, is all past tense of what he did and who he was, as if he's still dead. But what they found that first Easter morning is exactly what you will find if you come. The Bible says they came in John chapter 20. When Mary Magdalene came to the sepulcher, the Bible says in verse 1, she seeth that the stone was taken away from the sepulcher. Now I remind you again, every piece of truth demands a response. What you're going to do with it. And, and the further, the, the, the way you respond to each truth will depend whether you go further into truth or further away from truth. And here's where most people stop. They come to the grave, they see the stone rolled away, and because it's impossible in their minds to conceive someone who was dead to be alive again, they simply turn away because it's far easier just to stop there than to start going down the path of believing fairy tales. That's what they tell themselves. And the first evidence that he might be alive is rejected and shut down and they'd rather have just a nominal form of faith, a nominal form. They'd like to have just really, you could say, the traditional form of religion and faith because that sits quite well with them. But they don't want anything too serious. They don't want to be talking about dead people coming to life again and and uh, lame people walking and eyes, blind eyes being open. They don't want to talk about things like that now. They don't, know, they don't want to start talking about angels and demons. And they don't want to start talking about the mark of the beast. And oh, 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 That's a little bit too much now for many people. What you do with every bit of truth that God reveals to you will determine whether you get more. She saw the stone taken away. Well, look, don't stop there. Keep looking. And when people start talking like this, when people start talking like the stone has been rolled away and, and the Savior is alive and they met Jesus and their life has been changed, there's only one thing for you to do when you start hearing people talk like this. There's only one, one thing for you to do. Go look for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Don't take their word for it. You can think that the whole world, half the world, or however many of the world is just lost in a crazy cult and they bump their head. They're all mentally disturbed and deranged. That's what some people say about us. You know that. You can say that or you can go look for yourself. In fact, in Matthew, the angel said to the women, come and see the place where he laid. I love our faith. Our faith is a come and see kind of faith. It's not a listen to what I say and believe it and don't ask any questions. No, come and see. You come and you see. And when the women first saw, when they saw the first glimpse of evidence, they had a choice to make in their own mind what they were going to do. They could stop right there, make up their own opinions about what happened. And it, by the way, everybody's got opinions, don't they? I meet people all the time, well, I worship God my own way. That's nice. What you mean to say is you don't really worship God, you worship yourself and your own opinions and your own ideas. That's why we have so many denominations, so, so many religions, because people want to worship God their own way. And then one person uh, splits and breaks and they start their own movement and then they, somebody splits from them and they break and they start their own movement because everybody wants to do it their way. And they had a choice what they were going to do with what they saw. Were they going to continue? And by the way, when the news came to Peter and John, they now had a choice. Here come these panicking women out of breath. He's gone. What would you do? 
Bible says that Peter and John got up. I love this. Look with me, please. The scriptures say in verse number three, Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together. Let me ask you a question. Have you run? Have you come with any urgency? Because if, if you don't, when truth comes to you, if you don't respond, then here's, what, here's what's likely to happen. You in your own mind begin to, begin to make reasons why it couldn't be true. Begin to explain it away. We are so silly. People really are illogical. They say, well, I, I don't believe in truth, some people say. I don't believe that truth is all relative. And then we say, well, then how do we know that what you're saying is true? There is no God. How do you know? Uh, it's all nonsense. Well, hold on, how do you know that? Because to make that claim means you've got to know everything. That's quite a big claim. Quite a large claim to say there absolutely positively is no God. It's quite a bogus claim. And we really, our minds are nothing more than a lump of meat. There is no purpose to life. There is no soul. There is no God. We weren't made in God's image. We're all a bunch of freak accidents. Well, then why can you, how can you even trust yourself? If your brain is nothing more than a lump of meat, then how can you even trust yourself? That's why people actually go to the next step and say, well, this is all, this is all an illusion. Well, that's more consistent anyways with that kind of thinking than it is actually to, uh, to, call, to say that, uh, that uh, we, we've, we've, this is all not, we're just a freak accident. You can't trust anything that comes into your mind if that's all we are. What do you do with the truth that's been given you? The stone had been removed. They saw an empty tomb. They saw grave clothes lying there. They saw angels. You may say, oh, that sounds a little bit too fanciful for me. Angels, an empty tomb, grave clothes but no body. I'm going to stop right there. Thank you very much. I believe Jesus died. That's wonderful. I believe he did miracles. I believe he was a good teacher, but I'm going to stop right there. You go any further than that, that gets a little bit too exciting for me. How do you respond to such claims? Peter and John came. They ran both together. Some of you need to get up this morning and run to Jesus Christ and see for yourself that he is alive. And that's the next truth. We go from the truth that he's dead and then we go to the truth that the stone was moved away and the tomb was empty. Now, up until this point, even still, they didn't believe he was alive. They just thought somebody had taken his body. But that's the next thing. Because each truth demands a response. And Peter and John went in for themselves. They saw he wasn't there. And the Bible says in verse number 8, they went in also, that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. Well, what did he believe? I don't know. I don't know if he believed that Jesus was alive or if he simply believed that he was gone. I think that's, at this point, that's all they believed, that he was gone. Now, Mary still couldn't understand. And what we find next is that she stands there. Look what it says. Mary stood without or outside the sepulcher, verse number 11, weeping. And she wept and she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seeth the two angels in white sitting, the one at the head, the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Now, she could not possibly understand who she was talking to because she carries on a normal conversation. They've taken away my Lord. Now, it's interesting if you compare verse 13 to verse number 2. In verse number 2, when she comes to the disciples, she says they have taken away the Lord. In verse number 13, she says, they've taken away my Lord. 
And verse number 2, she says, They've taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they laid him. Verse 13, she's all alone, and her faith, her search for truth is getting deeper and more personal. And she says, They've taken away my Lord, and I just don't know where they put him. By the way, you never come to the full assurance of faith in Christ until it becomes a personal search. There she is. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back. Some people have made speculation. Why did why'd she turn around? She was talking to these two angels. Some think maybe that the angels beckoned her or the angels face uh, knowledge that someone was behind her. But at any rate, she turned around and saw Jesus standing and she did not know that it was Jesus. She knew not that it was Jesus. And Jesus saith unto her, by the way, this is oftentimes how the search goes. You begin searching for truth and you begin asking and you want to know the truth. You're like Mary, you're in desperation and tears. You want to know this, is this true or not? And you know, you oftentimes find yourself God speaking to you and you're not even realizing it's God. You've heard the little illustration, I'll share it again. It's not obviously not a true story, but the illustration of a man who, who was caught in the midst of a flood and the flood waters were rising. And he said, I'm going to trust God, I'm going to wait here for God. God will deliver me. And up come a big four-by-four pickup truck and said, get in, you're going to be drowned if you don't get in the pickup truck. He said, nope, I am waiting on God. The waters began to rise even higher and higher. He climbed to the roof of his house, climbed upstairs, and a boat came by and said, look, if you don't get in this boat, you're going to drown. The waters are rising. He said, I'm waiting on God. Don't you worry about me. The boat went by, waters rose, he climbed all the way to the tippy top, to the top of the chimney. Here come a helicopter, drop the ladder down, climb up. If you don't climb up, you're going to perish. He said, I'm waiting on God. And guess what happened? He drowned. Obviously not a true story, but you get the idea. Goes to heaven and says, Lord, I, I was waiting on you. Why didn't you rescue me? And God said, I sent a four by four and a boat and a helicopter. And sometimes we're looking for the wrong thing. We don't even recognize God reaching his hand out to us. Don't even recognize the voice of God speaking to us. And here is Mary looking at the risen Savior, listening to him, and she doesn't recognize him. And if she could make that mistake, then don't you think we could also? Woman, why weepest thou? The word woman is a common greeting, a term of respect when you are greeting someone in that day. Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? Quickly. Two questions. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And she supposing him to be the gardener saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, if you've taken him away, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. She is bent on finding him. But there's just one problem. One problem, as admirable as Mary's search is, there's one problem. She's looking for a dead man. That's why she didn't recognize him. And so many of us make the same mistake. In our search for truth, in our search for truth about Christ, we are not looking oftentimes for a risen Savior. We're looking for a dead man. Just like any other religious leader. And the great mistake we make is that we're looking for the living amongst the dead. But he's alive. And you're never going to find him if you think you're going to find a dead man. This is where Mary was, and this is where we oftentimes find ourselves. Many believe that he died. Many of you believe that he died for you. You believe that he's forgiven you, that he loves you. But you're still looking 
for a dead Jesus Christ to take home with you. But you're never going to find that because he's alive. Why seek ye the living amongst the dead? He's alive and, and sometimes that frightens us because as we talked with the children a moment ago, living people talk. Well, if Jesus is alive, what if he talks to me? It's exactly what you want. That's exactly what he does. Oh, hold on just a moment. We don't want to get too crazy now, you know. We don't want to get too charismatic or anything. He's alive and living people talk. And sometimes we like to have a dead Jesus that we can take away with us because we like to talk and just pour our heart out and just pour it all out. It kind of relieves the stress. We're not really looking for somebody to talk back. Is that you? Well, I don't mind talking to him. That's no problem. But please don't talk back. That's going to scare me a bit. But he's alive. And if he is alive, he will talk back. And if he is alive, it also means that he is king. Do you know this is the only time after Jesus has risen from the grave that he is referred to as Rabboni? Because that was a very a casual and intimate terminology used between student and teacher. But from that point on, she's the only one that uses that because in, the, in that moment of recognizing her Lord and her Savior, it was such an intimate moment. But from that point on, you know what he was called? Lord, Master. Because he was triumphant, victorious, risen King of Kings. And in those early moments of salvation, we had such intimacy, but as our understanding grows, he is alive and he expects us to follow him. And that's why some of us don't want him to be alive. Because we want to be king. We'd rather take somebody, or just tell me where you put him, I'll, I'll take him with me. We'd rather have him like that because we're king then. We can tell him all we want to tell him and tell him what we're going to do and and uh, we can tell him all of our woes and tell him all of our problems and complain about people to him. And he never talks back and says, hey, zip it. We like, we'd rather have it like that. Because he's not going to correct us if he's dead. But a living Lord says, hey, this is not about you. The living Lord says, wake up. You've got a mission. Your mission's to follow me. And he talks and he commands allegiance and he commands obedience and he commands us to follow him. And it's a whole lot easier for us just to say, hold on, just tell me where you put him. I'll, I'll, take, him, I'll take him with me. Let me let you in on a little secret. He's alive. He is alive. And he's speaking to people today. And he's leading people today. And his heart is being shown and revealed today. Day. He's alive. And you can't take him away. You cannot take him away as a dead man. You need to be taken away by him. You need for him to take you away. You need him to take you up in his arms and carry you away rather than you trying to find him and carry him away. If he's alive, guess what, my friends? It means you're free. If he is alive, then it means he's come to declare liberty to the captives. You're no longer a slave. If he's alive, 
You're no longer in bondage. And you know what? Some of us have gotten used to our chains, used to our prison cells. We like the excuse. We make excuses for why we're still struggling with the same things. Part of that is because we don't really have a relationship with a living Savior. If we did, we'd know we're free. Gloriously set free. And if he's alive, no more excuses. He is alive. Now it's time we started acting like he was alive. It's time we started realizing that the kings of this world, they can consult all together. The governments of this world can gather all together against the Lord's anointed, against the Christ. But it doesn't make a lick of difference because he's alive, king of kings and lord of lords, still seated on his throne. He's alive. So stop wringing your hands in worry and fear. He's alive. Stop looking at your life in self-pity. He's alive. And the sooner we recognize that and begin to talk with him as Mary began to talk with him, the sooner all those fears are melted away. The sooner all those difficulties are removed because our Savior is living. From that day forward, when the risen Savior was revealed one by one to these disciples and followers, their entire lives were changed. That's what changes a person's life when you realize that our Lord and our Savior didn't just die for us, but he rose again, proving he was victorious. He was not bound and, and uh, confined to the same things that we are. He's alive. And you have victory in him. In a living Savior, not a dead one. Are you following a living Savior? Or are you just entertaining the idea of a nice man who taught some good things several years ago and did some miracles, but really not really relevant to us today? But if he's alive, believe me, it's relevant today. He's relevant today, and you need him. You need him. Maybe today God has shown you a little bit more truth, another little piece of the puzzle. What you do with that will determine if he shows you more. Maybe he's giving you a little bit more. What you do with that this morning will determine if you get any more. And I encourage you today, run to him, run into the empty tomb yourself and see him today that he is indeed alive. You will not be disappointed. Come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. This is the message of his glorious resurrection. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank thee that we do serve a risen Savior even when we don't act like it. That our disobedience or our lethargy or our slowness of heart or mind does not change the fact that Christ is alive and well. Help us as thy children to follow him, to walk with him and talk with him, to know him deeper and more fully, more intimately, Lord. Help us to understand we can't really can't really love theological ideas. We can only love a person. And that person is Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, to believe that he is alive and to live like it as well. We pray for those who are still struggling, still on their journey, seeking. May they this morning have eyes opened a little more. May they perhaps even hear as Mary did hear one time the voice of Christ without even realizing that the Savior was speaking to her. But may this be the day, Lord, when they hear the Savior call them just as he called Mary by name. 
Oh, please, Lord, speak to people's hearts and save them today. In Jesus' name we pray.